I'm Darcy Sterling, and this is We Need to Talk. I can't tell you how many times in my youth I was told by people I love that I was too sensitive. Some of the most hurtful moments in my life involved being on the receiving end of those shaming conversations. I was taking things the wrong way. I was feeling things too deeply. I was actually told once that it's as if my nerves sit on the outside of my skin instead of underneath. I suppose being a therapist wound up putting my sensitivity to good use. I've always been much more gut-driven than theoretical, though I'm neurotic, so I cross-reference my instincts with professional journals to confirm that what I feel is actually rooted in science. But I don't approach my work by leading with theory. I feel my way through a session, and I draw from many different perspectives based on what my client needs in that particular hour. Cut to today. I haven't been accused of being too sensitive, not seriously at least, in about 20 years. And I can't help but wonder if a part of me wasn't shamed into submission. If a little Darcy in me found a little hiding place to tuck away her feelings. Because today I'm told, and I also acknowledge, that I'm overly rational. If someone in my personal life comes to me with a problem, my brain immediately wants to problem solve rather than encourage a conversation about their feelings. And that comes at a price. There's nothing quite like being a therapist and being told by someone you love that they just want to talk about their feelings and they don't want you to fix things. That is the most basic thing a therapist does. This idea, though, about being too sensitive, it comes up all the time in my sessions with clients. And not just the women. My male clients are often accused of being too sensitive as well. So what is it? about emotional sensitivity that is so off-putting to people? Why is the ability to suppress emotions often seen as a strength? And what's the price we pay for suppressing our feelings? And is it possible that we're actually looking at sensitivity the wrong way? Could sensitive people actually have an advantage? And if that's the case, did I inadvertently mute one of my strengths to assimilate and blend with my tribe? Here with all the questions is my co-host, Ashton Tardif. Okay, so what is sensitivity? And is there a definition of what it means to be sensitive? To be sensitive is literally just to be really perceptive of yourself and slight changes in your environment, whether it's with people or with the actual environment, you feel something shifting around you. Therapists call it being attuned. And Basically, it's like this heightened awareness of your own emotions and the emotions of others. It's associated with empathy. It's associated with compassion on the upsides. So is this something that we're born with or something that we develop? Both. We are born with a baseline ability to detect others' moods and also to tolerate our own discomfort. Some people just come out of the womb better capable of tolerating their own discomfort than others. But the environment that we're in, which is to say the extent to which our environment is peaceful and our caregivers can tolerate their own discomfort, that absolutely impacts how sensitive we become. And more importantly, whether or not our level of sensitivity is viewed as and defined as a strength or a weakness, how it's characterized by the tribe that we're born into. Right. So I feel like somewhere along the way, the word too sensitive has been misconstrued in terms of like 
you think of somebody where someone says something to them and you just know that this person is going to be upset about it, even though it may objectively not be something to be upset about. So the term being too sensitive, how is it kind of developed into being something that people think of as a negative? Sensitivity, depending on the people you surround yourself with, can be viewed as fragility or a weakness or a deficit. When people see it as a deficit, I, you know, I tend to believe the good in people. And I do tend to believe that people are viewing it that way because they worry about the person being too fragile, not being able to make it through life. It's usually something that we uh, label that we lop onto a young person or a young adult. And so as a result, I do think that people, parents, adults, mentors in a person's life, they offer that label up with good intentions. But I mean, it can be it can be an incredibly injurious thing to be labeled with. It's an awful way to be branded within a family. You will spend the rest of your life trying to rebrand, if you can, at least. But the way that families view family members, that's usually the hardest stereotype to ever break through as a family member. Yeah. And again, this is being brought up. I know we talked about it briefly last episode, but especially for men. Right. Sensitivity is viewed as something that is bad or you need to work on shedding bad or you need to hide that. And uh, like you said, this usually dates back to when people are quite young. So when you label someone, I mean, really at any age, but we typically tend to see this at younger ages as too sensitive, what does that actually do to their psychological and emotional state? So I think this is a PSA, and it's really important that people hear this. It does not toughen the person up. It does the opposite. You're never going to toughen someone up by calling them a pussy or by telling them they're too sensitive. I don't know why this is a fucking newsflash. You know what I'm saying? It causes the person to then begin to doubt themselves, question how they're feeling. Now, a little bit of that is appropriate. We mm -hmm. do want to run our feelings through a little algorithm. You know, we don't just want to lead with our feelings, but we also want to raise children and young adults with a good sense of themselves and to be able to trust how they're feeling and that their feelings are often a reflection of what's happening around them. And when you tell somebody that they're too sensitive, they begin to walk through the world questioning their ability to judge their environment and the people in it. Mm -hmm. It can really, really dampen somebody's ability to trust themselves, be secure. It can cause people out of shame to feel like they need to suppress that and to really tuck it away, which then can cause so many other problems like anxiety, but really who wants to be open to criticism and judgment? When you tell somebody that they're too sensitive, you're basically letting them know that you're judging them. Mm. It's not a helpful thing. It's not going to bring them any closer to the stoicism that you want them to imbue. People who say that generally want the person in front of them to be more resilient. They worry about their ability to bounce from hardship. They worry about their ability to tolerate distress. That's taking it from the most optimistic perspective. 
It can also cause people to withdraw from their close relationships. It can cause kids to move far away, not to want to be around their family. Again, who wants to be exposed to criticism and judgment? Nobody does. So if you don't feel like you're being accepted for who you are, you're going to distance yourself. And moving on in life, that can cause people to want to avoid close relationships. It can certainly cause somebody to want to avoid intimate relationships. And it impacts mental health. Eventually, someone who is constantly told that they are being too sensitive is likely to try to dampen that sensitivity. How do we do that? We drink, we do drugs, we overwork, yeah. we we do all the addictive things that, you know, maybe in small amounts are just fine for us, but there's a tipping point. And you're yeah. really ensuring that the person who is hypersensitive feels so self-conscious about that, that they're really going to do their damnedest to try and untrain themselves from being hypersensitive if they have any social skills. Because we all want to belong to the tribe and we don't want to do things that are going to cause us to be like booted out of the tribe. So let's flip the script. Can sensitivity be a strength? Yes. Every character trait can be both a strength and a weakness. It becomes a weakness when it's dialed up too high in the wrong environment. But for sure, sensitivity can be a strength. When sensitivity is a strength, meaning you're not only sensitive about yourself, you're also plugged into how others are feeling and you modulate yourself accordingly to accommodate the people in your life, not to turn yourself into Gumby or inside out or into a person that you're not, but there's a certain amount of co-regulation that we all do. Like if I'm hanging out with you and you have a splitting headache, I'm not like Talking at my normal volume, I'm gonna I'm gonna modulate. I'm gonna slow it down a little bit. I don't want to add to the beating drum in your head. So there's a certain amount of being attuned to other people that is incredibly helpful in all of our relationships. So provided it's not just one direction, just to the self, and it's also applied outward, it can be a huge asset. Think about like leadership skills. Definitely, you want your leader, a team leader, anybody in charge to be aware of how other people are feeling, how words are landing in meetings, what is going on with your other team members. The best leaders are aware of how their team members are feeling. And the same goes for compassion. People who are sensitive tend to be far more compassionate and far less judgmental mm. and happier than other people who are less sensitive. It can also, I would imagine, though, be like a little bit of a of a burden. Oh, it can be crippling. Like there have been times, and you actually have told me this, where I'm so attuned to my partner to the point where it consumes me. And I am no longer able to discern between my, my state of being and theirs because I am so tuned into their, their radar and I'm picking it up and I'm carrying it. And that's definitely been an act of practice for me. And just in general, carrying other people's energy. And here's the thing. Ideally, in relationships, what we want is we want to be able to be grounded enough ourselves so that we can allow them to feel all the emotions on the emotional spectrum. Mm -hmm. People are not always going to be neutral. They're not always going to be happy. They're not always going to be calm. And we have to carve out space and allow our partners and our loved ones to be however they are. Part of the problem with telling people that they're 
too sensitive is the subtext to that. What they're picking up on is it's not okay for me to be me and it's not okay for me to feel anything negative because the people around me can't take it. So it's really important that we be able to tolerate one another's discomfort and not run right to the fix, which I am the greatest offender, as we all know. And I'm right behind you. I'm right behind you. (laughs) I'm like, I tell you what, Ashton, you can fix my problems anytime you want. You can (laughs) fix my mood anytime you want. If I complain about something, it's because I want it to go away, generally speaking. If I'm just muscling through it, I'm not talking about it. So I welcome your problem-solving skills. Bring them on. You know what? Likewise, and I, I will say that you have been so amazing at helping me solve my problems when, in turn, I feel I mostly just give you a joke that makes you laugh, but... Yeah, I've gotten, I, I've gotten much better at asking you guys. And by you guys, I mean you, Danielle, and Steph. How do you want me to support you in this? Yes. Do you want me to hold space for you and allow you to express your feelings? Mm-hmm. Do you want me to help you problem solve? Do you want a hybrid? Yeah. Like, so what are you looking for? Basically, I'm asking, do you want me to mask my mouth? <laughs> my wife has COVID. That's why I'm walking around with masks. Do you want me to, like, mute myself and hold space for you. And sometimes it feels like my lips need to be sutured in order for that to happen. Yeah. Same. It's like a faucet. Sometimes I'm like, which we need to turn it off. Do we need to let it like drip? Do we need to just flood? It's so funny because you do want to let it drip because it can freeze up. Yeah, it can. But it's an active practice for people who are sensitive in some ways and people who who aren't. Because I'm like, all right, maybe I'm not being sensitive to actually what they need, but I think I'm just coming in to save the day and I'm actually making it worse. And it's actually our own discomfort that we're having trouble tolerating in Mm. the presence of somebody else's dysregulation. Yes, because now we're we're carrying their bad feelings and we just want it all to go away so we can now feel better. 100%. Oh, that, that could be like literally tattooed on my forehead. That is what I want in my personal life, not in my professional life, guys. Yeah. I'm not talking about you guys, I'm talking about people in my personal life. And, you know, people often say to me, I don't know how you do what you do. I'm like, my clients are a breath of fresh air. It's the ones in my personal life that exhaust the hell out of me. My clients are drinking the Kool-Aid. They're in therapy. They're like there therapy. to drink the Kool-Aid. That's what they're there for. They are. They're not, they're not in session just complaining and regurgitating the same stories over and over again. When that happens, that points to something I need to do different, not them. Yeah. So obviously there are times where we need to feel our emotions and lean into them. And then there are also times when we need to harness them. How do we know when it's time to bring out the leash on our emotions? Wow. Harness rather than a leash and not a muzzle, more like a dial. So Think of your emotions, the negative ones at least, as ranging on a scale from zero to 10. Zero is neutral on discomfort. 10 is the most discomfort or negativity you can feel on an emotion, the most intense you can feel, negatively speaking. If you're at a three or above on a discomfort scale, you should not, and you can tolerate that, 
that's fine. You should not be communicating with people when you're feeling that way. And the reason is, is because you're starting to escalate at a three. And as you escalate, you move out of your prefrontal cortex, which is the part of your brain that can think and strategize its way through problems. And you're pulling that offline as you inadvertently go into your amygdala. And the amygdala only does one thing. It keeps you alive. It keeps you alive by giving you multiple choice. What are the three options you have in the amygdala, Ashton? You got in my, in my amygdala or no, everybody's amygdala can fight, can fight or freeze. Right? There she goes. That's ah. my kid. That's my kid. I'm so proud of you. My niece, <laughs> not my actual kid, but basically. My wow. Kid. Semantics. Yeah. My sister timeshare, sir. <laughs> so exactly right. The amygdala chooses fight, flight, or freeze. And if you are in your amygdala, this is not a time for you to be talking to anyone. I would argue you just really need to de-escalate yourself. So how do you de-escalate yourself? Well, Go back to episode four, how to have a fight. I talk about how to do it. You're basically going to engage in some grounding techniques to de-escalate yourself. So what do you do if you find yourself hanging out with friends, family, loved ones, a partner, and you're talking about something annoying that happened during the day? And no matter how much you talk about it, you find yourself repeating yourself and you're not finding relief in the activity of talking. You're actually just staying at the same level or maybe you're going up. If that happens, you need to stop talking because the talking's not providing you with relief. And what I would say is what is upsetting you is probably deeper than the superficial thing that triggered it. You want to examine that in quiet time and ideally with a therapist. So there are times when you need to harness your emotions. When I say that it's okay to feel however you feel, and it is okay to feel anything on the emotional spectrum, feelings are always valid and it is okay to feel those feelings. It's the intensity of the feelings that will often propel us to act those feelings out. And that is not okay. Because yeah. we want to keep the people around us feeling safe, feeling like you're still somewhat in control of yourself, and like we can have a productive conversation, dialogue, experience together. And if you're talking about how angry you are, and you're not just talking about it, but you're exhibiting that anger, other mm -hmm. people's nervous systems begin to shut down. They begin to feel under threat. They're not able to hear you properly. So... I would say that those are the situations under which you want to learn to harness your emotional responses. You don't want to harness your emotions. You just want the intensity down enough so that you can do something about it and mm -hmm. be productive with it or just leave it. You can't just leave it when it's that high. It doesn't matter what your response style is, whether you're somebody who acts out, shuts down, when they're really jacked up, it's not good for your nervous system. You don't want to stay in that state too long. It's almost like doing an exercise with bad technique. Staying in a heightened state of discomfort is not good for us because it just strengthens the muscle memory around that feeling, that intensity. Yeah. It makes it easier to go for you to go back to that moment. It makes it much easier. The, path, the neural pathways light up and then your brain knows how to go there real quick. You've so seen it, people like that, I'm sure. Oh, I mean, hello. Uh, a former president was like that. Hello. Okay. I don't need to even drop his name. You guys know it. Um, 
So <laughs> speaking of that presidency, let's talk about post-traumatic stress disorder. And <laughs> can this <laughs> impact your emotional responses? Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> yes. PTSD. I want to get serious for a minute because PTSD is a very serious thing. Mm -hmm. Post-traumatic stress disorder happens when we've been in a situation in which we either were helpless or we felt helpless. And if it wasn't an incredibly terrible situation that happened, micro moments like that over an extended period of time can also cause PTSD. Mm. What that looks like is people tend to respond one of two ways to that. And sometimes they respond to both. Healing from PTSD can be like a process where you start off with one response style and you wind up with another. So the most common response style to PTSD is hyperarousal. These are people who experience a heightened state of arousal characterized by like increased sensitivity to noise, to sound. They're irritable. They have difficulty concentrating. They can be prone to like startle responses. Do you like how I just mimed that? I just mimed a startle response. I actually have a very sensitive startle response. I, I do too. Noises. I, Sudden noises. Yeah. Oh my God. Yes. And like sometimes when Steph will like pop her head in unexpectedly, I can literally jump out of my skin. <laughs> I've seen it. <laughs> We've actually had, we actually have some funny videos about that, that I will share another time. But that is sadly because I have lived through PTSD and that startle response in me, while it's tamped down, it's still not gone completely. So they can have great difficulty managing their emotions when they are triggered, when people with PTSD who are having a hyperarousal are triggered. On the other end of the spectrum, there's hypoarousal. In some oh. cases, people Did with not PTSD, yeah, sometimes people with PTSD experience a numbing effect. Oh, is that they detaching? Can, they can feel a little detached from their day-to-day -day activities or from their emotions they can have a reduced capacity to experience pain or pleasure. The numbness, which at first is a breath of fresh air for most people because they're finally not feeling the pain, can become very problematic. You begin to feel like you're a husk of a human being, like there's nothing on the inside. Nothing inside of you has died is what I need people to know. It's still there. It's just where you are in the healing process and you have to come out the other side. But it can lead somebody to feel like they're emotionally empty. It can lead them to feel like a part of them has died. But again, mm -hmm. I can't emphasize this enough. Nothing inside of you has died. It's not like you've been physically injured and there's paralysis. It's just a matter of what will make that heal. It will come back. It does come back. I've seen it come back. Mm. That's a really bright and um, lovely message to send to people. So can we teach people to tolerate more sensitivity from others and to respond more emotionally? So we can teach people how to tolerate each other's sensitivity and emotional responses. We have to start by normalizing that all emotions are okay and that people should be allowed to express and talk about their emotions. 
Now, I want to be clear. I'm not talking about normalizing emotional outbursts. I'm mm -hmm. talking about normalizing somebody coming to you and saying that they're really angry without acting really angry. Mm -hmm. You can talk about the feeling without embodying it, which will allow the other person to stay in their nervous system, in their prefrontal cortex, so that they don't start retreating or engaging you in mm -hmm. a way in which, you know, it's quite controlling when you tell somebody that they're too sensitive. You're trying to control and manage the other person. So first and foremost, it has to be okay for people to talk about their emotions. It mm -hmm. has to be okay for people to talk about their feelings. It doesn't mean that we're greenlighting people acting out their feelings and engaging in emotional outbursts. So if someone like you has a degree of sensitivity, oh, and I guess like me, but has stuffed it down, is it possible to reaccess it? And should we? Yeah, you have to. And I'll tell you why. So here's a story. First time I ever got a television show, I was 38. It was eight years before Famously Single. And the way it works is a production company films a really short trailer of the show, the concept, and then they shop that to networks. Now, at the time, I was just coming out of my divorce and I had severe PTSD, along with lots of other problems and diagnoses. But PTSD was the crux of it. But I was on the mend, but I was still coming out of it. Now, when you come out of something, it still feels like you're very much in it. And it can look mm -hmm. like you're very much in it. So we filmed this really short trailer. And I get a call from the executive producer. And he tells me that he needs me to come in to refilm a bunch of different parts of this trailer which I thought I had killed. And he tells me the reason is because I look flat. Now, I don't know, right? Hmm. Shocking, right? Because I don't think of me as a flat person. I think of no. me as somebody who's quite transparent in her emotions, right? Yeah. And in fact, part of the reason I've allowed myself to be the person I am in session is because being in front of a stoic or stone wall when I've been the client of other therapists and they've not their facial expressions don't change no matter what I report to them has oh. been so injurious and felt so antiseptic and unnurturing that I have really always wanted to look like a human being in the room. So I'm so astounded to hear this from this producer that I ask him to send me some clips so I can see what I need to correct. And I watch these clips and I definitely look like I'm sedated. I look like I'm overly medicated. I look flat as a pancake and I see exactly what he's talking about. And I realize because I'm a shrink what the problem is. The pain from the PTSD was so severe that I suppressed my emotions. I spent years trying to suppress the emotions that I was on a roller coaster ride with, could not get away from. And in doing that, I tamped down all my emotions. You can't get rid of the negatives without getting rid of the positives. As one goes down, the other goes down also. As one mm. comes up a little bit, the other comes up. Ah. And I realized that if I wanted any chance of having a TV show, that I was going to have to basically quit the therapy that I was in, which was quite ineffective. And I was going to have to apply some of my own tools because I had taught people who had been through PTSD how to re-experience their emotions. And I share that story with you to say that I personally have been able to come out the other side. I've walked 
at least two dozen clients through the same process. And here's what it looks like. Most people are going to need to do this in tandem with a therapist. They're not going to be able to do this on their own. But I'm going to give you the overview and maybe share the episode with your therapist. And the therapist can help walk you through it. Essentially, what you want to do is you want to slowly expand your window of tolerance. Your window of tolerance is the range of emotions and intensity of emotions and physiological arousal in your body that you can tolerate while staying in the part of your brain that can think and can still engage in your daily activities. So when you're in your window of tolerance, you can still think clearly, you can make decisions, you can engage in relationships appropriately. We want to take that window of tolerance, which for people who were like I was, my window of tolerance was this big. I could tolerate this much. And you want to expand it slowly over time. For most people, the easiest way to do this is to begin learning grounding techniques that they can use, coping techniques that bring you calm that you can use when you're distressed or a little escalated. You'll be more willing to feel the negative emotions if you know that you have tools that will work to help you de-escalate. So again, go back to episode four, how to have a fight where I teach you how to de-escalate yourself. And maybe maybe we'll have a dedicated conversation just on that topic, how to de-escalate yourself. But for now, the key is to identify grounding techniques so you feel confident that when you're beyond your window of tolerance, you know how to self-soothe. Over time, you expose yourself to mild triggers that become more moderate, that become a little bit more stressful, and you use your grounding techniques to return to neutral. You rinse and repeat that over time, and you expand your ability to tap into all your feels. As you begin to tap into more of your negative feelings, you're going to notice that you can feel more of the positive feelings because as one unfreezes, so does the other. But I want to make sure that that made sense to you because that was really complex. Did it? Yeah, that makes sense to me. But I think that, and maybe we can do another episode about this, that is assuming that people have concrete grounding techniques because a lot of people don't. They just have coping techniques that aren't healthy. Um, so maybe you can like quickly list off some grounding techniques. You don't need to explain them, but maybe just list them. So for someone listening, they can be like, okay, yeah, I can do that. So when we're escalated, we want to have the ability to calm ourselves down. Grounding techniques give us that ability. There's three really fast ways to change your emotional state. Music. Music mm -hmm. is medicine. Beyonce, it this is, is for you. It is there for you when you need it. People need to have two or three songs that always put them in a great state. I used to do this before auditions. I used to do this before really intense things that would happen in my life. Basically, those were just, you know, TV auditions and things like that. I would have a playlist that I could always listen to that would make me feel like I could run through a brick wall. Everybody needs that, whether it's something that energizes you or calms you. What you don't want is the depressive playlist that puts you in the fetal position and makes you want to sit in the corner rocking back and forth. That is not the kind of thing I'm talking about here. I'm talking about the kind of music that always puts a smile on your face. So music is the first, one of the fastest ways to change your emotional state. The second fastest 
They're not in order, just to be very concrete. The second tip I'm going to give you has to do with scent. So our sense of smell goes to our brain faster than any other sense that we have, faster than music, than, than our auditory processing. So sniff a bunch of essential oils, find something that really doesn't just calm you, but just like really makes you feel good. Really so no snorting, good. no snorting anything. That's not what she means. So go find some essential oils that are really, really effective. And then the last thing is changing your physiology. Intense, short bursts of exercise, 100% change. It changes your emotional state. So back on episode four, how to have a fight, I walk you through how to use exercise to do this. Go listen to that episode and you will know exactly what to do to change your physiology. It takes less than three minutes, less than three minutes, but you mm -hmm. have to do it. The best tools in the world, they only work when you do them. Yeah. You have to use the tools. So for my coworkers, when you hear me or see me doing jumping jacks in the stock room, just know I'm regulating and grounding myself so I can respond to emails. Okay, so <laughs> in a similar vein to what we just talked about, if we feel like we are too sensitive and want to change, what are some ways that we can manage our emotions and regulate our sensitivity without completely changing the person that we are to our core? So learning how to manage your emotions, which is basically what a sensitive person wants to be able to do. You don't want to stop feeling the things that you feel you want greater control around how, when, and why you express your feelings so that you are the one in control and you're not being controlled by your emotions. I can't underscore this enough. DBT therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, that is the pinnacle of emotional management skills training. So find a therapist who is trained and practices DBT and that is the beginning of learning how to do this. This is very hard to do by yourself. Very hard to do because you've been living your whole life having little control over your emotions. But big picture, this is what it looks like. You start by identifying your triggers, your greatest triggers. There are commonalities. There's three buckets, five at the most, of your greatest triggers. Maybe start by listing everything that upsets you over the course of two weeks, every time you're upset, and then put those into three to five buckets. Now you've got three to five triggers, three to five situations or people that tend to trigger you. You identify grounding techniques and you begin imagining yourself in front of that triggering situation and you use the grounding technique to de-escalate yourself so that you're not in real time in front of that situation. We call this in vivo. The imagination is incredibly powerful. Think about anxiety. That's nothing worse more than imagination. Oh. And you can see how that wreaks havoc. You're mm. right. Anxiety is just your it's imagination. Nothing more than imagination. Mm -hmm. So when you imagine, wow. Wow. if you can imagine yourself feeling disturbed or being in a situation that's disturbing to you and also being alone and in private in the privacy of your own home, you're safe, you're in a neutral place, 
now start trying to apply those grounding techniques to yourself. It's much easier to do it by yourself than when you're in front of the person. You rinse yeah. and repeat that enough times, and then you begin to build emotional memory around how to do that when you're actually in front of the person. Eventually, you'll expand your window of tolerance. Mm -hmm. It's very ironic because it's like the same thing as being numb and not feeling anything. You do the same things in different order. Right. Also, if anxiety is just, you know, part of our imagination, then why couldn't we just imagine ourselves at peace as well? Because I feel like some people think peace is detaching. It is numbness, but it's not because being numb is not at peace. It's just the lack of anything. You're so smart. It's true. I, this literally just came to me and I had to say it out loud so I didn't forget it. I will be journaling about this right after we log off here. I'll tell you what, when I was trained in positive psychology, one of the things, so I was, I've always been a therapist who liked to, to give my clients therapy goals. So I knew what I'm supposed to be doing in the session. Um, <laughs> Keep both of you in check. Basically. And <laughs> I remember when I was being trained in positive psychology, they asked us to give examples of our goals with our clients. And I was so psyched. I was like, I'm going to be the smartest one in this class. I'm going <laughs> to show them my goals. And my goals looked like decreased depression decrease anxiety, decrease X, Y, Z. And then the lecturer said, so, okay, let's say we minimize anxiety. Let's say we neutralize it. Let's say we neutralize anxiety and depression. Is the person happy? And I'm like, no, what's your point? I'm like, that's the next goal. They're like, what if happiness was their goal? Can you be happy and anxious? Not really. Two for the price of one. That's just further to the point. Listen, with people with moderate or severe levels of anxiety, a happiness goal is going to do nothing for them. It's going to feel very invalidating. It's going to be torturous. Mm -hmm. So if you're a therapist, don't apply that to people who have moderate to severe levels of anxiety. That needs a real cure. But what yeah. you said is absolutely true. So you get rid of the bad thing and you're still left at a state of neutral. If you want something positive, Pick the positive thing as long as you're at a minimal level of distress and you get two things for the price of one goal. Hmm. And that looks like I want to increase my mood rather than minimize my depression. Mm -hmm. Because you can't be depressed if you're happy. The two things don't go together. You're not yeah. feeling depressed if you're feeling happy. So if you increase your happiness, those are two goals for the price of one. Um, okay. So now that you just gave me a really nice compliment, I'm going to then ask you this question. And that is, respectfully, how can you, Darcy, be the therapist that you are during the day and then be so left-brained respectfully at night and in your personal life? I don't know, Ashton. How's that working for you? <laughs> I mean, it's working just fine for me. There are times where I feel like I've gotten better at addressing it with you. It's mostly via text, but you've oh, made it clear you're sucks. not good at texting. But I just remind myself, I'm just like, this is texting Darcy. This is not Darcy Darcy. Yeah, how does I, I mean, it's working out for me. I love you. You're my favorite person. We have a podcast together. Maybe I am biased. It makes me rough around the edges. That's what it does. It makes me rough around the edges. I'm not always attuned. I often need Steph to be like Darcy. 
think about this for a second. And then I'm just like flooded with embarrassment, no longer shame, which I'm grateful for, but I am flooded with embarrassment that like, I'm a therapist and I need my much younger wife to point out the error of my ways. Thank God I have people in my life like Steph who can help rein me in and remind me to unzip emotionally and be a human being in the room periodically. I have to mindfully do it, but it is, it's trippy for me. And I know I don't show up perfectly. And I know that I can be abrupt because I'm trying to get it all done in a timely fashion. I'd probably be better off waiting to respond to all the texts for the end of the day. But I sometimes think that if it comes through as a text, it, there's a sense of urgency behind it and I must respond. It also depends on who you're you're talking to. Because I personally might have more anxiety if I don't get a response until the end of the day. Um, because and I think just... I know that about you. You do, I I, yeah. That. So I try yeah. to get to you fast, faster than other people. But yeah, well, you're my mm. you're my you're my person. So of course I'm Ugh. gonna try. But I mean, listen, the best I show up is for you. Sorry, Steph. So think about that. Best I show up is basically for you. And it's not great. It's not always No, great. it is great, but it doesn't need to be great. It just needs to be there. It just, you show up, period, you show up. And I, I would always rather somebody show up than be perfect only sometimes and show up. So I'd rather have consistency in the showing up versus perfection. I love that. Thank you. Thank you. It's a love oh. fest here. Oh my Read God. We need to talk with Dr. Darcy Sterling as a Sterling Standard production. This episode was produced by Darcy Sterling with editorial support from Vicky Vergolina. Editing by Bart Miguel. Our theme music is by Trending Music. Special thanks to Amanda Cristiani, Preston Smith, and Stephanie Sterling. If you found this episode helpful, we would love if you would please share it with a friend. If everyone would do that, we'll be around for a while. We'll be back on Tuesday with another episode packed with the relationships and dating hacks you've come to expect.